Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transitioned their company and others who experienced disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. On this episode of Succession Stories, I spoke with Len Carrick, CEO of Uncle Charlie's Sausage, a privately held brand distributing to 700 markets across seven states. Our interview was during the COVID-19 pandemic, and his facility was open for production as an essential business. Len acquired Uncle Charlie's Sausage in 2014 after the company faced a tragic business succession. Within six weeks after acquiring the company, they were then hit with a massive industry crisis. Len talked about getting through that crisis and parallels to today. I hope you enjoy hearing Len's experience as an entrepreneur through acquisition and his insights for resilience. Len, thanks so much for joining me on Succession Stories. I'm really glad that you took the time to talk with me today. There's a really interesting story about Uncle Charlie's sausage that we'll dive into and your experience with the company and entrepreneurship by acquisition. It's a great topic. It's something that you know a lot about. And I think our listeners are going to be really interested in hearing what you have to say. One of the things before we start is I wanted to connect the dots with one of the other episodes with Joe Butte from Hollymead Capital. He had talked about how his group had put the deal together to acquire Uncle Charlie's Sausage from its founder, and you were part of that story. So thanks again for being here and for talking about your experience with the company. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about Uncle Charlie's Sausage. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk about entrepreneurship through acquisition. I think it's a term that's being widely accepted now, something that was different back when I first started out. But it's certainly a great path for a lot of people to become entrepreneurs without having to have that next great big idea. So thank you very much for having me on. And yes, the story started with a connection. Joe Butte, a friend of mine, we had been friends for a long time. He gave me a call in 2013 and said, hey, you want to take a look at Uncle Charlie's? And I said, sure, because generally when somebody asks me if I want to take a look at a business, I say, sure, because you never know what you're going to find out there. And so at the same time, I got in touch with my business partner, Jim Rudolph. We were in a business together from 1998 to 2007. And so I asked him if he was interested in taking a look at it with me. And his response was the same. Sure. So we did. And then uh, January of 2014, we closed on the deal. 2014. So take us back to that time and tell us also about the history of Uncle Charlie's Sausage and what brought you into it. We'll talk about all those details. I think starting with Uncle Charlie, who he was, what was he about and his company? You know, Charlie Armitage, who started the business, this is a great American story. It's just great. You know, Charlie did a lot of things in his career. His father was in the supermarket business, so he kind of had that little touch to it. But eventually, he became a spice salesperson. So he was selling spices to sausage companies all through Western Pennsylvania. And you have to remember, Laurie, that back in this time, this is in the 1980s, there were a lot of sausage companies. And Charlie was going around selling spices. And again, you'd have to know Charlie to appreciate this. But he said, nobody was making sausage right. He said, and as a true entrepreneur, he decided to make his own sausage. And he was having a co-packed at a place in Altoona. And he would go around Western Pennsylvania, talk to the grocers, sell sausage. Next day, he'd go pick it up and drive it down and deliver it. So it started out of his own garage, if you will, and eventually built this up to the biggest brand in Western Pennsylvania. We have the largest market share. And I don't mind talking about it like that, that we have the best sausage, that we have the best market share, because, you know, 
Charlie's the one that did it. He gets all the credit for it. We've just taken on his legacy. So it's just a great story of how a person said nobody's doing it right. And now it's the biggest brand in Western Pennsylvania. Can I guess that Charlie was perhaps in his second part of his career when he started Uncle Charlie Sausage? Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Charlie was in his late 50s when he started this business. So, you know, he had been through a lot of things and stumbled on this. And it always reminded me of, they talk about, I forget his name, the guy that started Kentucky Fried Chicken, the colonel. You know, I guess he was older, too, when he started that. So it's never too late. And the founder of McDonald's was, too. That's right. Ray Kroc had a long career before he took McDonald's to where it is. And to think about that, I mean, it makes sense. You know, you learn a lot. You know, as you're going through your career, you learn a lot of things. And finally, when you're ready to take the plunge or the plunge is thrown on you, you have a lot of knowledge and you can run with it. So Charlie started a sausage company and it grew and it was successful. And at some point he was ready to retire, right? Yes. Did Charlie have a succession plan within the family? Yeah, Charlie did have a secession plan. And unfortunately, like a lot of great stories, it has some tragedy to it, too. Charlie started a business in 1988. He eventually bought an old gas station down the street here in Vandergriff and worked there for a while. And then in 1999, built the plant that we're currently in, which is a very nice facility. He did a great job. I've seen a lot of sausage companies our size, and we probably have the best setup and the best building that I've seen. And again, Charlie gets all the credit. So along the way, I mean, here is a guy who starts this out of the trunk of his car, basically, and grows it to the number one brand in Western Pennsylvania. And along the way, his wife worked with him, Franny. At the plant, the office used to be bigger. I cut it in half because... Franny was on one side, Charlie was on the other side. They looked at each other all day long, which is a true testament to their relationship. They worked together and lived together. And then in the 90s, Charlie had four children. His son, Chaz, came into the business. Chaz did some selling, eventually got involved in operations. About 2005, 2006, Chaz basically took over managing the company. So there was a secession plan. Charlie and Franny still came to work pretty much every day. I mean, they didn't technically retire. And then I think it was around 2008 or 2009, Charlie sold the business to Chaz. But again, Charlie and Fran still came to work. Charlie loved selling to the grocery stores. He loved talking to people. And Chaz ran the operations. Unfortunately and tragically, in 2011, Chaz was killed in a private airplane crash. There were three people killed you know, here's Charlie, late 70s, loses his son, which is, as a parent, you know, the absolute worst thing that can happen, losing a child. His business partner, they saw each other practically every day. He's devastated. I mean, who wouldn't be? And the plane had gone down in the mountain woods and they didn't find it for a few days. So there was always this hope. It's such a, just a terrible story. And So Charlie tried to pull things together for about a year, and then he just decided he would sell the business. And that's when Joe called me and said, you know, he thought the business was coming up for sale and would we be interested? So like I said, it's a great American story about a person that started a business, grew it. He did have a secession plan. He had three other children and nobody else was interested in coming into the business. And so at that point, he decided to sell the business. That is a really tragic story. And thanks for sharing that background. You can feel for Charlie at that time. You can just sort of feel it. Well, you know, and if I could tell this one other little story, I mean, you build these things on relationships. And I think that was one of the things when we were going through the process, you know, I got to know Charlie pretty well. And I remember it was between the Christmas and New Year's holiday. We basically had the deal done. This is the end of 2013. We closed in January 2014. And I called Charlie and I said, hey, you want to meet for lunch? And he said, sure. And, and I was just meeting with him to learn, you know, we're going to do this transition and all of that stuff. And I got there and, and Charlie was always very upbeat, always had this gorgeous smile on his face. And I got there and he was just, he was kind of down. And I said, Charlie, what's wrong? And he said, well, and, you know, he said, it just came to me. He said, you know, I, at that time he had to move Franny, his wife, to a center for dementia and He said, you know, I basically lost Franny today and I'm selling my business. He said, this was like my whole life. And he said, this is all at once. 
you know, it's going away. You know, it was just, it was sad. Here's a guy who's at that time, I think now 80, 81 years old, and it was tough. That was a nice moment that you had together where you were able to draw that emotion out of him. That was a lot of emotion. Yeah, he had run this company for decades and lost his son, and then he was losing his wife, essentially. That is a lot to take on, especially for someone who was so tied into the business. He kept coming in every day. He was certainly part of it. He had a big emotional stake as well as a financial and personal stake in this business. It's his name on the door. Yes. And you know, just to go off the rails a little bit here, I've been very, very fortunate to primarily deal all my career with small businesses. And this is what's so appealing about it. I mean, these businesses are personalities. These are not giant corporations that are technically faceless. These businesses are who these people are, and the people are who the business is. It's like people say to me, because I've always been in small businesses, they'll say, well, you know, you run a business, you must work a lot of hours. I have no idea how many hours I work. I have absolutely no idea. I could never pick it up because you're constant. It's you. It just becomes who you are and, and what you do. So, you know, you're always thinking about it, but you're also able to balance, but it's hard to describe. These businesses have personality because of the people that started at them or running them or whatever. So it's fun. It's really fun. It's really fun. And when you have a business that you're so into it, you don't have a concept of time. I felt a little bit like that in getting this podcast off the ground. It's back to grad school hours for me. I've been up to <laughs> two in the morning sometimes editing and reading and getting ready for things. And I've enjoyed it. I really have. And I've had that experience at different companies where I've worked, where I didn't care how many hours I've put in. I was really enjoying what I was doing. And I can understand that for Charlie, certainly. And it's great to hear for you too, because you have come into the business and feel like it's yours. It is yours. You've, you've acquired it. Mm -hmm. And similar to Charlie, it's almost like you feel like your name is on that door as much as his name is on that door. That's true. And first of all, I have to say, when you're able to do as you were talking about staying up and you're not worried about the time and, and because it's you and, and it's not work, it's just you. I think we're very fortunate to be doing that. Technically, I guess I would say, if somebody said to me, how many hours a week do you work? I would say none, because it's not really work. It's just who we are. And you're right. Stepping into the business, it becomes you. So you, and, and, and I have, you know, I always talk about this obligation that I feel that I have. I mean, there's always an obligation in running a business and, and taking a business over, but to take Charlie's heritage and move it forward. And that's an important part of it. What made this opportunity attractive to you? I'm curious to talk a bit more about that. You didn't have experience in the meat business. Is that right? That's correct. And you know, when I got in the business, I was interviewed by one of the trade magazines called Meeting Place. And I thought it's funny. I mean, I still get it. It's called Meeting Place, but it's M-E-A-T-I-N-G. And I think it was a cover story. And it said, from the outside in or something like that. And the first question a person had to me is, it, it was like, you know, you don't have any background in the meat business, then, you know, how do you feel that you could come into this business? You know, it's like, well, <laughs> first of all, business is business. You either make a product or provide a service and you sell it and you account for it and you build it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's sausage. I've been in sporting goods. I've been in telecommunication. I've been in propane cylinder reconditioning. I mean, it's just business. But I do tell, like, I told him this story. I said, well, I do have a connection. You know, my dad was a meat cutter for A&P for 27 years. And then when they left Pittsburgh, he went and worked for a shop and save owner. So I do have sort of a meat heritage and I love to eat meat. So I said, that's my credentials. So it's worked out just fine. But I mean, you take the underpinnings of any business, it's basic, unless it's something that is truly technical. But two, you can always hire technical. So I think it's more, you know, businesses are businesses. You make a product, you provide a service, you account for it, you sell it. That's the most important thing. You sell the product or service and you grow it. From a financial standpoint, I would understand why this deal might be attractive to you and to your group as buyers. 
if you could talk a little bit more about that, was there anything specific about the business that was appealing to you? Sure. And then likewise, if you could share what you perceive was important to the seller, what was important to Uncle Charlie and what ultimately made this the right fit together? I understand there was some competition for the deal. There were multiple bidders, maybe even up to 10. They had an investment banker involved in sourcing offers. And ultimately, it worked out that your group got the deal. So what was the magic in that? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question because how it, now that I think about how it all came together and who was our remaining competition kind of plays into that. You know, when we first looked at the opportunity, um, the, you know, the business was very stable. It was doing fine. It was making money. And um, so that was appealing. Uh, what was specifically appealing was that it was a local brand. That, that was very popular that, you know, and as we learned more about it, we learned how popular it was. There were, uh, Charlie had just planted some seeds that we thought we could take uh, to move the company forward. Uh, so that was exciting. Uh, the facility, you know, it, it's important that uh, the, the, the bones, if you will, the, of the business was in good shape. It was, it's a nice facility. Um, it, it, like I said, it had a strong brand. So from our point of view, there were a lot of checks that, that checked off that made sense for us to buy the business. Uh, there was an investment banker involved. Bob Ventura uh, was the investment banker. And, and I, I had known Bob before. I don't know that, I don't think that really played into it because he did a good job for Charlie. But it, it eventually came down to there were two. There, were, there was us, you know, Jim and I, and and there was a what would be called a strategic buyer, somebody a, a larger company that's in the meat business that was from somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, I could probably guess who it was, but you know it was never disclosed. But I knew that that was our competition. So so it's coming down to you know a group that is uh, in the business. Um, could you know have other uh, synergies with it and us? And um, I what really helped us was number one you know charlie was looking out for not only the brand but also for the employees and for the people here his he later told me after he bought the business that one of his concerns would have been that this other company could have probably easily shut this plant down move production to their place um and then and then just sell the product in and build the brand and 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 a lot of times people who are shopping don't know Charlie Armitage owns the business. It's local. Some people today are still surprised that we make this, you know, our products are all made in Vandergriff, Pennsylvania, and we're right up the street. Um, and I remember the story when, uh, you know, Rolling Rock in Latrobe was sold and, uh, you know, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch bought it. And the first thing they did is shut the plant down, move production to New Jersey. And, and so Charlie didn't want that to happen. Now, that said, you know, yeah, I, uh, a lot of time I, I've been. I used to do acquisitions for a while uh, when we were acquired one time, and and the owners always say, you know, it's not about the money, it's about the people, the customers. I, in the end, it's about the money, and 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 that's fair. I mean, let's face it. This is people's uh, retirements. This is their net worth, et cetera. It is about the money. So we we certainly were in a competitive uh, position there, and 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 we paid, but. Um, but Charlie was concerned that the, that the, these people from outside would do the, you know, shut it down and, and employees would be out of a job. And, 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 and he was, that was important. And, and I do think too, through the process, um, I got to know Charlie, you know, I got to know him pretty well. You know, I, we had several meetings, just him and I sometimes. And I think that was, uh, that was probably part of it too, you know, and, and, and I remember, when we bought the business, there was a, we had somebody who did a press release for us. And, and I remember reading a press release and I said, oh, we can't send this out because the press release said, you know, um, uh, McKnight Capital Partners. I mean, my, uh, my business partner, Jim Rudolph, that's, you know, he has a company called McKnight Capital Partners, was teaming up with uh, Tecum Capital, which is the group that found the business that Joe was working with. Um, and and they, they have a minority share, uh, you know, acquired local. And I said, you know what? We can't put that out. I said, that sounds like these, these miserable uh, 
I guess not to disparage, but I will. Private equity groups are going to come in and they're going to slash and they're going to sell off the assets. And I said, that's not us. It, you know, it's Jim and Len bought the business, you know, and let's, let's go with that. <laughs> and, and we'll give Tecum credit because they deserve credit. But it, it, I didn't want to go to the, to the market and, and, and take a local brand that maybe people recognize as local and, and make it sound like it's this big corporate. It's not, you know, it's, it's a couple guys that bought a so- local sausage business and they're going to continue to do what the original owner did. So fortunately, that's the way we got it in. That's how you got it in. That makes a lot of sense, especially as you talked about Charlie and what ultimately was important to him was that legacy. Yes. And the employees and his name is still on the door. And I know he has since passed away, Yes, but he would be very proud of what you guys have done with the business, I'm sure. Well, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And the story that you shared earlier about getting together with him and meeting with him and building that relationship, that probably went a really long way. I'm sure, as you said, the financials worked out, but ultimately it was the right thing for him and his family to choose a local solution. So that's great. Yes, I agree with you. I think, and and I now looking back and having told that story, you know, the fact that Charlie was willing to talk to me that one day, like he did. I mean, we didn't talk about the business at all. You know, we talked about what his, what he was going through and it was a long time, a couple hour lunch, but you know, the fact that he was willing to to talk and the deal was done by then. So, but, but, uh, but I, but that relationship was important to both of us. How did that relationship continue after the deal closed? What was that like regarding the transition? Was he still in the business for a while or was he out at the close? I have to tell you, Charlie, uh, Charlie, to his credit, he, he was the best, the best business sales, one of the best business salespersons that I ever run into because he, he was able to, uh, this is the legacy, the business had been around uh, 25 years maybe or something like that. His name, he's Uncle Charlie, it's on there, people know him. Um, and, but he was, he was able to, to, to break from the business. Now, we, we hired him on as a consultant um, and, 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 and I asked him to be around for 30 days to do a tr- smooth transition, which he agreed to. And after that, he was, you know, going to be available by phone call whenever we needed him. And, 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 and that's a great way to do this. You know, the, the owner needs to get away. Uh, I know when we sold McKnight Cylinder, uh, the, the company that bought us was a strategic buyer. And, and uh, I had a very good relationship with the CEO. That's how we put the deal together. And he said to me, well, I want you to come work for us. I wasn't doing anything at the time. So I said, sure. And he said, I'd like you to do acquisition or, or you know, uh, called a corporate development, but it was acquisitions. And the company was located, it's Amerigas. They were located, they're located in, uh, out near Philadelphia. And he says, but you don't have to move to Philadelphia. You could work out of the office at McKnight Cylinder, the business we were selling. And I said, no, Gene, you don't want me there and I don't want to be there because I'm going to see things. You're going to run this business different than I did. And 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 I'm probably going to tell you that. I'm going to say, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do this, but you're going to have your reasoning. And I said, and at the same time, I don't want to be drawn in. I don't want, when there's an issue, somebody running to me because I have the history. I said, we got to break apart. And and Charlie, I didn't have to tell him that story. He just naturally did that. And, but I, I Charlie and I were friends. So after the 30 days and a few phone calls, I, we started having lunch every other week and we got together and it was great. It was, we got together as friends. We talked about we talked about the business. He was curious. And I would ask him things. I'd say, Charlie, what about this? And he would say to me, you know, Len, it's your business. So you do whatever you want. And I'd say, well, what would you do? And he'd tell me, but he'd say, you know, it's your business. I'm not telling you how to run it. And that was so refreshing as opposed to say, uh, well, I heard you're doing this and that's really stupid. You know, I mean, it was never any of that. It was just, you know, it's whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. And even, you know, one of the first things, it took us about a year, over a year, but one of the things we did is we wanted to refresh the brand. And that was, you know, update the label, which had been around for 20 years. Um, certainly the website needed help. I mean, you know, I think they, there was postings on there from like 2008 or something like that. I mean, it, 
uh, so so we started to to the goal was to upgrade the brand to give it its you know working with the marketing people to give it the uh, recognition of a premium brand that it deserved and to do some uh, things that had changed over the 20 years that that the brand needed basically refresh it and I would ask Charlie about it and he'd say hey Len it's yours whatever you want to do is fine and one of the things we did um, is we have a we have a person on our new label and it's it's an older person and at the time when we were doing that, uh, I, the marketing group, I was working with Andrea Fitting, and she said that when you have a, a label, you know, you have, I forget, you know, a nanosecond on a shelf for somebody's attention to get there. And, they, and she said that it's been proven that if you have a face, particularly eyes, that that attracts people. And she used the example of the Trix bunny. I think it's a bunny who, if you look at it, I don't even think the eyes are attached to its head. But she said that there, it's been proven that, that people go to that face because it's a face. And she said, we need to put that on here. So I went to Charlie and I said, Charlie, we want to put you on the label. We, you know, you deserve, you built this company, you should be on the label. And he said, no, I won't do it. And I'm like, Charlie, it's your label. It says Uncle Charlie, come on, you, we got to put you on there. And he's like, Len, it's your company now. It's not mine anymore. And 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 we we did argue about it over a couple of lunches. And, and finally, I said, okay. I mean, he just kept, he, he said, put your face on it. I said, well, I'm not Uncle Charlie. He said, well, pick somebody else. So we do have, and, and, and you know, this is a business show, and so I could tell. I mean, that person on here is nobody. I mean, it's, uh, it was kind of generated to make it, you know, to give this look as if it's your trusted uncle and all of that. But, but, but that's, that's how Charlie was about the business. He, he did start it. And he, so he wasn't one of these like grandiose, yes, I'm wonderful. I created this. It's me. I mean, he was able to do what he did and step aside. It was great. The transition with Charlie sounded like it went really well. And he was ready at that point, right? He had yeah. crossed the chasm and was ready for that step back. And it sounds like you and your team did a good job together of transitioning in. What was it like with employees and your management team and vendors and suppliers? How about the whole ecosystem? Did that take a while? Was there any particular thing now as you look back and you'd say, oh, I wish I did that over? Well, <laughs> First of all, uh, I, I work very, very hard at uh, uh, not looking back and say, I wish I would have done so, because that'll just drive you crazy. There's a movie I love. It's called Gumball Rally. It's a, it's, it, it's the cannonball run with Burt Reynolds became a bigger story. It's about people that race across the country. And there's a great scene where this uh, uh, two people are going to get, they get in this car and uh, this uh, Italian grabs the rearview mirror and he breaks it off and he throws it out of the car. And the guy with him says, why'd you do that? He said, because of what's behind me does not matter. And, and, and so I kind of like go with that. Okay. So I, there, uh, but uh, you know, the biggest thing you got to deal with in a transition, number one is our employees um, and, and number two are customers, because when you're doing an acquisition, you're basically buying employees and customers and, and and because you know the 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 brand is supported by the customers the the people that are doing the service or making the product that's what's in that's important those are the two things you're buying i mean we jim and i could have gone out and bought a bunch of stuffers and put a line up bought some trucks and opened up you know uh, Uncle Len's sausage, but it, it's it's it would take a long time or would fail, whatever. So, uh, you know, that's you're buying a brand, you're buying customers, you're buying employees, and 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 unfortunately, when when change happens, everybody doesn't like change pretty much, and when change happens, everybody gets negative. So, you know, going into an acquisition, I know that the employees are going to be nervous. They think uh, we don't know you. Uh, and and you want and your change because you're the new owner. We don't like change. Therefore, by transitive property, we don't like you because you're probably going to fire us all, or you're going to cut our wages, or you're just going to be mean. And and there's all these things around that. So the first thing you have to do is uh, in an acquisition is do nothing. Is don't come in and rock the boat. 
I mean, you know, we knew there were things we were going to do, but you have to wait so that everybody can just settle down, get to know you, uh, get to know who you are, get to know that you're not a big ogre, that you're not going to cut salaries, that you're not. So, so the first day, the first thing to do is have an employee meeting and explain, look, you know, <laughs> We, we need you. We want you. I, hey, I have no experience in the sausage business. I don't have any experience in the meat business. So I need you. Uh, and then the second thing, of course, are customers. Now, customers aren't quite as bad as um, employees. I mean, they're not there. But, you know, the word on the street was uh, we were going to, you know, uh, make a less quality product and we were going to raise prices. And so the first thing we're doing is we're not changing. And I, and I got emails, you know, I ate your sausage and I, why'd you change it? It's like, we didn't. <laughs> Why would I change a good thing? You know, I mean, the, that recipe we use today is the, still the one that Charlie started in 1988. And, and the meat's the same, everything, the vendors are the same. So, uh, but, but that's what people think. So then we're, we're, we get this business in late January and, and customers are saying they're going to raise prices, be mean, all that stuff. And, and, and our, our largest cost, which is pork, gets hit with this uh, uh, PEDV, uh, uh, an epidemic going through that's killing piglets. And the price that we, our number one, our, our largest cost in this business goes up in price like 78%. And it's like, well, uh, what do we do? You know, if we raise prices, then everybody's going to say, see, they bought this business and they raised prices. And I'm like, holy cow, this happened from late January to early April. And it was, that was like, you know, I remember people saying, well, you picked a fine time to buy a sausage business. Um, and so this was like our first catastrophe, you know, a few weeks into it. And so, um, and it was funny, the end of that story is what I learned about the food industry. Everybody knows everything. So finally, you know, we decided we would be a follower in price. And when we saw the national brands start to raise prices, we did. And I was so, I was nervous about it. And I remember the first customer we called and we said, hey, uh, we have to take a price increase because of the poor costs. You know, we're giving all these excuses. And they said, well, we've been waiting for this. We know pork's up. I mean, so, you know, it taught me a lesson in uh, the industry understands, you know, we're not gouging, we're not doing anything, we're working at this. So that was an interesting time coming into this. Interesting is an understatement. I mean, you were six months into your business and then you had a massive health crisis in the pork industry and drove up the price of pork almost 80% for you. Yeah. That's incredible. You had to deal with that right out of the gates. Yeah, There's a lot we can probably talk about in terms of today and dealing with today's pandemic. And by the way, I know you're recording at your operation and you're considered a essential business and you and your company remain open. And I wanted to thank you and your team for doing that and being present as part of the solution here. I think that we should talk about this because maybe there's lessons learned for today and how can small businesses weather this storm. Now, obviously, not every company is going to have the same solution or outcome, but I'm curious to know, you know, what happened on the other side? Was the position of the company better because you had sort of some belt tightening? And essentially, how did you bridge from the crisis to recovery? Well, having always been in small businesses, the first thing I recognize is cash is the most important thing. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, EBIT is great. Net income's great. All of that's good stuff. But boy, it just comes down to cash. It's how much money do you have in a bank and what are you going to do about it? So when we, when we start, and by the way, um, just, to be, just to be clear, it, that all happened in six weeks, not in six months, that pork thing. So it was, you know, it was kind of real fast. But um, by that time, uh, boy, I, I could just go way off on so many things. At that time, I had brought in uh, Charlie Gabriel. He's our CFO. Charlie had worked with me at another business. Um, and, and, and I can't talk about how important it is to have a bench that, you know, you go into one of these things and you could call somebody up. You worked with them before. They know you. You know them. 
and and they come in. So day one, everything's working. You know, it's a it, it's not, you know, you don't have to recruit. And and I believe that uh, resumes should have that same disclaimer at the bottom. You know, previous performance is not uh, indicate of future performance because you never see a bad resume. But not having to go through that and just bring somebody in. He started on. Uh, I think uh, later in the spring, but we just picked up. But the thing we did is we just watched cash. You know, I, I mean, even now, I mean, I watch cash every day. I know what's in our bank, what's our receivables. That to me, that's like the fundamentals of every day knowing what's going on. So back in this crisis, we looked at cash uh, and just did what we could to preserve it and maintain it and manage it. I, the other thing, and, and kind of tying it into today uh, with this uh, epidemic that's going on is that uh, I think you have to stay calm uh, because that's in and that I don't take that lightly because there's it's real easy not to stay calm and and you have to take time to think you have to take time to to not do anything just think just sit and think and finally you got to talk to other people and get help uh, I, I, you know, people that are running successful companies are not doing it because they know everything. They're doing it because they know people who know a lot more than they do. So, uh, so the quick story there is when we got hit with that pork price, I, I, I'm new in the business. I don't know anything, but I had met a person through due diligence that was running a bigger facility uh, that had been in the meat business for 40 years. And so I called him up and I, and his name's Jim as well. I said, Jim, I said, I, I, yeah. he was one of the guys who said, well, then you picked a great time to get in the meat business. And I, and we laughed and I said, well, now what do I do? And, and he talked me through cycles. He says, we've seen things like this before. And, you know, and he named a few other things and he said, here's what's exactly going to happen. And he had laid out what was going to happen. And a year later, what he laid out happened. You know, and, and, and it gave me some direction. It gave me hope. It gave me a path to follow. And I think, you know, even though today um, this virus thing is something new to everybody, but I think there's a lot of advantage in talking to people and talking to experts and, and just thinking about what they're saying and, 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 and getting a path. And what I'm doing right now is uh, I'm, a, I'm on the board of the North American Meat Institute. And this this group is it's our you know trade group our lobbying group whatever but they have been so proactive in having conference calls as a lot of people are and and just giving direction specifically to the meat industry and this has been so helpful and and I would tell anybody whatever their job is whatever they do I and I teach a class and I tell these kids the same thing I said find you know Mr Rogers said find the helpers. <laughs> That's true in business too. It's like fine. I tell the kids, the students, I say, I don't care what you do when you graduate. Go find the people that have been there that have done this. The the older people, you know, they they know a lot. They experienced a lot, and you can learn and by step a lot of things, or at least be calm because you could talk to somebody that's that 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 knows more, has experienced things, and it's very beneficial. So looking at the cycles, sitting down, thinking, taking the time thinking about a path to follow, talking to experts, but ultimately having hope. I think that's a great message. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great message. And trying to stay stay yeah. positive and to stay calm. And I want to learn more about your class. That's how you and I met. We were introduced because yes. of Carnegie Mellon University and the Tepper School. And you teach a class there. What class is that? Yeah, I, I, I teach a class there that now is expanded into a program. So I'm going to give my pitch for, for those people who, who might think about going to business school. Uh, so the class that I'm teaching right now is called Entrepreneurship Alternatives. And Carnegie Mountain, the Tepper School got kind of ahead on this uh, years ago in um, giving, you know, Carnegie Mellon, which If you get me started talking about Carnegie Mellon, that's another show because they've done so much for the city. Um, You know, uh, uh, they're always recognized as high tech startups. I mean, the amount of startups that have come out of there, the high tech startups are just phenomenal. Okay, but um, you know, they they took a different tact on this entrepreneurship through uh, entrepreneurship through uh, 
acquisition. And it starts with a class called Alternatives. And what that class involves is I give an overview of becoming an entrepreneur by either uh, finding a business and buying it or, or buying a franchise buying into a franchise because in both of those cases you can end up running a business where you don't have to have the next great idea or anything like that or be able to make the better sausage than everybody else in the market so that's sort of an introductory class to the whole idea of of this difference as opposed to doing a startup Uh, i also do a little pitch a little bit on social enterprise in that because that of course is another thing that's growing so the idea is to give students at the business school this kind of uh, broad base of other things that are out there that's followed by a class called entrepreneurship through acquisitions where we get very specific on you know going out looking for a company maybe starting a search fund uh you know how do you look for companies how do you finance the purchase uh what's it like to start as day one as the CEO and start running it. And then the third class that piggybacks off of that is a workshop where we hope to get eight to 10 students that really want to do this, that want to come out of Carnegie Mellon and start to search for a business. They can actually do their capstone project, their last uh, semesters there to go out and find something and buy it. And, and, and uh, it's just a great program. And it's getting a lot of, there's a lot of the schools that have it. And Carnegie Mellon, the Tepper School has done a great job on creating a program all the way around it. I think that sounds awesome. And just full disclosure, and I know you know that I'm teaching a class with Sean Amirati and the Corporate Startup Lab. So right. I've gotten to know you and Kristen Carr and some others in the other pillars of the, of the Schwartz Center, which is fantastic. And it's great that you give back that way. You've turned into one of those helpers. You said to find the helpers, but you are one of the helpers, Len. I think that that that's true. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And, you know, I tell my students, too, I I had a call with two of them last night, and I tell them in class, I say, look, I I mean, I believe in this. I I tell them, why would you want to go be a consultant? Why wouldn't you want to step out of this graduate program and be president of a company and run a company. I said, that's so much cooler than being a consultant or an investment banker or whatever. And I do tell them that I'm theirs for life. So a lot of them, they get enthralled with that big paycheck from the consulting companies and the signing bonus. I say, go do that for a couple of years. I say, in three to five years, you'll call me and say, I'm tired of this baloney and, and I want to do it. And they can call me and I'd be happy to help them anytime. One of the things that I love to work on with clients is exploring innovation and especially in legacy businesses. And I'm curious what innovation initiatives that you've undertaken at Uncle Charlie's to position the company for growth and competitive advantage now that you've had the business for several years. The things that we have done are, are I, I almost I almost don't think I'm as innovative because I'm not the first one to do these things. I mean, I like buying companies because I, I'm not very creative, uh, but I could tell you some of the things that we've done uh, that have that have really helped. The first thing we did uh, was we got SQF qualified. So safe quality foods is what SQF stands for. And there's this global push, global, um, it's uh, global quality and foods initiative um, that's going on. And we recognized when we were doing due diligence that the big grocery stores uh, are going to start to require everybody to have some level of, of safe quality foods. Safe quality foods is sort of like ISO 9000, where you have an independent auditor come in, audit what you're doing. You know, it's the classic uh, write down what you're going to do, do what you said you're writing down and record it. And, and so there's, there's this piece in uh, for the food industry that you could get certified as SQF. Uh, Charlie's, uh, Uncle Charlie's at that time was not. And a lot uh, back when this all started, a lot of smaller companies, because there's a cost associated with it, uh, there were a lot of smaller companies sort of got a pass. Um, but we knew that it coming, it, it, you know, it was going to get to be a requirement and it is now i mean if you want to deal with walmart and aldi and uh giant eagle and all these big retailers you you got to be certified and so that was our first thing and 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 this goes back to my bench story because um we wanted to do this and we wanted to do it fast and i had heard it takes 18 to 24 months and i'm like well that's not fast 
And so, uh, again, I went to my bench strength. I called uh, Phil Conti, who was uh, ran our operations at McKnight Cylinder and had gotten us ISO certified. And I said, Phil, I want to bring you in and I'm going to start you uh, in maintenance because that's what you know. But eventually, you know, you're going to run the plant. But we got to get certified in SQF. So put all your attention there. And and uh, Phil came in. He started, I remember it was March 17th because it's St. Patrick's Day. And by November, we were certified. So he did this thing in you know, a little over seven months, eight months. He got us certified. And, and that was a huge step for us because now we could, you know, we were no different than, than the national players. So that was number one doing that. And I talk about Phil bringing him in and Charlie, um, our CFO. Um, you know, somebody recently was interviewing me and they said, you know, what's your biggest accomplishment at Uncle Charlie's? And I said, well, there's a lot of accomplishments and I'm trying to think of it. And as I started to talk about it, what really came through was the fact of this team that I have here. I got Phil, I have Charlie, now I have uh, uh, Paul Baranek, who's running sales. These three uh, they're just great. I mean, they run this. They they run their individual areas. It's it's a man. It's a, my job just to keep them calm, and and be there to assist them in in their challenges. But they they can run with it. And I had, uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's just a wonderful thing to be able to work with people that you really like and love, and that they're good at what they do. And so as far as an accomplishment, it, to, to think of, I'd, I know it's not too innovative, but <laughs> to be able to pull that team together like that, and again, having that bench strength, you know, being able to call two guys that you used to work with who know you, you know them, they could step right in, you know what they're capable of, it's just, it's just huge. Um, so those were two of the big things. Uh, and then, like I said, we did want to upgrade the brand, and that took some time. Um, you know, to, to get a new website up, to get the, uh, just the, the refresh of the label. Um, and then, you know, we worked on uh, the plant. Phil, who runs operations, is is a genius as far as being able to come up with processes to help improve uh, and change things. You know, there, were, there was a new regulation that um, serving size had to change. It had to match. The USDA was saying serving size had to uh, match what, what the people were eating. So here's the example. When Uncle Charlie, when Charlie Armitage has the business, he's running Italian hot sausage. Okay, so that comes in a link, that comes in bulk, that comes in a patty, comes in different forms. Well, Charlie's, back when he did the labels, you could say serving size because it's me, two ounces. Here's the nutritional panel. So now you have one label for every product that's hot Italian sausage. Well, the USDA said, well, that's just crazy because two ounces of one of our grillers is like two-fifths of the size. I mean, nobody eats two-fifths of a you know, sausage. So we had to go to link. And then, you know, so how many, how, what's your nutrition for a link? What's your nutrition for um, the uh, patty? What's your nutrition in bulk? You know, all of these things. And, and so we had to figure, how are we going to do this systematic? How are we going to make sure we get the right labels on? How are we going to, so we started, had to put in all these processes. So again, these are not, you know, big, great ideas that you could write up in a textbook or something, but they were very, very important to us as far as making sure that we could get everything under USDA regulations and also be able to still perform and make the plant run, uh, you know, in a cost-effective manner. So there were a lot of little things like that. Uh, but again, I, I, I have to give credit to Phil and I have to give credit to the people that I'm working with who, you know, I let them think, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and we, I'm a sounding board really for them to help us get where we need to be. You have a great team around you and that sounds like it's been one of the critical pieces of the formula and keeping the recipe the same has been critical. Yes. And innovation doesn't yes. have to be dramatic transformation. Innovation can still inherently be changes and that's what you did. You changed the management team, you changed the processes, you brought in certification that enabled the company to get to the next level. So those are all accomplishments for sure to be proud of. And in and of itself, that's an innovation. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I appreciate you recognizing that. So last question. I like to ask all of my guests if you have a favorite saying or mantra regarding entrepreneurship. 
Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have a mantra. I would tell you that, um, uh, I guess the first thing I would tell you is I'm very, very fortunate. I've known all my life since I was a little kid that had truly had a Kool-Aid stand. I didn't have a lemonade stand. I used Kool-Aid because it costs less. Uh, and I had a paper route and all that. I've, I've always wanted to do what I'm doing. So I'm very, 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 very fortunate that I get to do what I, I've always wanted to do, which was run run businesses. Um, I, I don't, and, and it's, it's somewhat, sometimes you feel it's a curse uh, because I know I can tell you two specific examples where I was driving home and screaming in my car, why can't I be like my brothers? Why can't I just go get a job and, and work somewhere and just do what, I mean, they both are very successful and I, why can't I do that? And I can't. And so, and, and my wife, she's, her definition of an entrepreneur is somebody will do anything not to get a regular job. So I guess, um, I, I don't know that I, I have anything to, to offer as a mantra or anything. I l- absolutely love what I do. I, I feel very, 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 very fortunate that I get to do what I love to do. I'm one of those, I guess, five percenters or whatever they are that are doing what they love. Uh, so I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know that I have anything other than to say, I love it. I mean, you know, we're going through a crisis right now, an absolute, I mean, this whole country, we, and we don't know how bad this crisis is. I mean, it's, it's, but, you know, uh, and we're open, we're an essential business. So, I, you know, I'm battling making sure our plant's safe. I mean, that's our number one concern right now. We don't want that stupid virus in this plant. And I, you know, I'm working with the employees and I'm doing, I'm reading, I'm trying to figure out what do we do to keep us safe? Uh, and, and we have people that, you know, uh, they say, oh, I feel sick or, oh, okay, don't come in. I mean, we're working very, very hard at this and I wouldn't change this for the world. I mean, this is, it's just like, I don't know, it gets the energy going and, 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 and having a true, having issues to deal with and working on them is just, uh, it's so much fun, <laughs> even though it's, it's, we're in a crisis for heaven's sakes, but it's, um, so I'm sorry, I don't know that I have an absolute mantra to tell you or anything like that about uh, about entrepreneurship other than I would say, boy, it's just a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful way to work. Len, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your stories about Uncle Charlie, your experience with entrepreneurship by acquisition. And I really appreciate you and your company for everything you're doing during the crisis. Thanks for your words of hope about getting to the other side of this transition. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Three things before you go. One, follow Succession Stories podcast on LinkedIn. Join the community to share feedback, submit questions, and ideas for future episodes. Two, if you want to develop a roadmap for your business to innovate, transition, or grow, message me, Lori Barkman, on LinkedIn about VIP consulting. And three, if you enjoyed the episode, hit five stars in Apple Podcasts and share with friends and good pods. Thanks again for tuning in.